Marcelo Guadiana, and this is um, our fifth podcast uh, on climate change, truth, freedom, and health. And Dr. Shiva is joining us right now. Hello, everyone. This is Dr. Shiva. Today, we're going to have a very interesting discussion on climate change, truth, freedom, and health. Some of you may know I've been tweeting a lot about this, and I was um, uh, Scott Adams had me on last week, yep. and we had a very, very good discussion. So uh, I thought we'd do a podcast on that. But I think one of the things I want to start with, Marcelo, is to sort of um, uh, set this frame framework, because what's happened, I think, broadly, you and I have discussed this, in the world right now is we've separated people into left and right, north and south, skeptics and deniers. And the reality is issues are actually a lot more complex than that. And both sides like to put people into one of these. And what it does, it never really lets discourse take, take place. By way of background, if anything, I'm a green activist. I'm a accomplished scientist and I'm a fighter for freedom. You know, for, if anything, people may almost want to call me a social justice warrior. If you look back at my background, oh, people yeah. may think I'm a far lefty. But when I say I'm a green activist, you're looking at someone who, uh, you know, grew up on a farm in deep South India. Um, many of you know my grandparents were farmers, subsistence farmers. Uh, at least 30, 40% of my time I spent uh, on the, with my grandparents in a, in a village where there was no electricity, no running water. You had to go outside if you wanted to go to the bathroom. But they worked, you know, um, 14, 15 hour days. And uh, they grew uh, rice, uh, cotton, uh, uh, coconuts. But on weekends, my grandmother was a healer, as I've shared with you yeah. before. So I grew up in this world, you know, in a very organic world, long before Monsanto ever came, you know, long before we even talked about local foods. This, everything was local there. And that's the environment I grew in. So uh, that world is what inspired me to want to get really, really um, to, to know medicine and also to understand why there was uh, caste systems, which I've talked about because we, we grew up as quote-unquote untouchables in this Indian caste system and but if you watch my journey there's a clear arc of this guy who's deeply interested in nature living pure I grew up meditating you know studying with great yogis learning yoga and meditation at a young age it's just part of my life yeah this is your meditation room actually this is my meditation room that we're in right now and I I meditate regularly and uh but you know my uh when I say I'm a green activist, you know, I'm the guy who created the clean food certified label. If you go to Whole Foods, there's a, a label called clean, which integrates organic food, safety, you know, bioavailability, nutrient density, and non-GMO. Yeah, you'll see it in a lot of products. You'll see it on a lot of products. We, I did that as a labor of love out of our center called the International Center for Integrative Systems. The raw food movement was growing about four or five years ago. Whole Foods was getting concerned. There was no standard. So I did that. You know, for nothing, we helped built that as a standard. It's a part of our nonprofit education center. You have a lot of great companies um, that have been certified, but we did that to really help go beyond organic. It's called clean food certified. The other thing I've done is I spent a lot of time, again, funded our own research to do this, was to really uh, uh, get into the whole non-GMO, GMO issue. You know, again, I had no horse in the race. In 2014, there was a front page article on the front page of MIT, um, which said, buy fresh, buy GMO. This was on the MIT Technology Review. Yeah. Right, so when I saw that, I thought I was, I, I, a lot of people initially thought, they thought it was an ad, but it wasn't. It was making fun of the local movement. 
And this is in the most preeminent technology magazine. Um, and it was essentially saying, buy fresh, buy GMOs. And as you read the article, it basically says the poor people of Africa and India are going to um, go to hell in a handbasket. And we need to give these people, almost like a missionary model, we need to give them genetically engineered foods. So I had just several years before that finished up my PhD, creating a new technology called Cytosolve. People can go to C-Y-T-O-S-O-L-V-E, solving the cell. And I was able to use this revolutionary technology that I had created to literally um, go beyond the need for animal testing. So we could model molecular pathways, understand what's going on. And I used that technology, published a series of five peer-reviewed papers. And I was able to show that there are no safety assessment standards for GMOs. That the way they do assessment is very arbitrary. And we were able to show that scientifically. In fact, we were able to show that for soy, that if you actually had done real testing, you would have found a 250% difference between um, uh, genetically engineered soy and GMO soy um, in the level of glutathione. That was never measured. So that was the second thing I did in the green world. We, uh, you know, for my Fulbright, I created a whole new way to integrate Eastern and Western medicine called Systems Health that came out of my Fulbright research. You know that I offer seminars on that to doctors, MDs, yoga people, and we really bridge East and West. Cytosol, as I mentioned, is our latest invention, which eliminates the need for animal testing. Very green. Um, and more recently, I did a movie with uh, uh, the produced by Pierce Brosnan and his wife Keely Brosnan called Poisoning Paradise. It's really about how the agrobiotech companies on the island of Kauai, on the western part, um, essentially took advantage of the Hawaiian people and uh, used it essentially as an open field air testing for all sorts of horrible chemicals. And then obviously I, I created email which saves 1.8 million trees per day. So I think I'm pretty green, you know, so, um, but I'm a professional scientist, you know, I get up in the morning, I do science, you know, I, I probably read 50 papers every day, 50 to 100 papers, you know, in all different fields. Uh, I'm, uh, you know, my PhD is in biological engineering and systems biology. My engineering studies uh, span the fields of mechanical engineering, electrical engineering, you know, biological engineering. I understand fluid mechanics. I understand radiative physics. Um, these are, by the way, the foundations of how you understand what's occurring in the climate. Yep. Uh, there's, by the way, no field called climate science we'll talk about. This is a made-up field. I see the real field is physics. Um, and then, more importantly, as you know, you know I've, I've always fought for freedom. You know, from my early days at MIT, there's me protesting, make sure more poor blacks and women and people of color and poor whites could come there. There's a picture of me burning the South African flag on the steps of MIT because I was against MIT's investments in racist South Africa. You know, I fought for food service workers to get a fair wage. On my PhD graduation, I was the only guy who held up a sign in 2007 which said US out of Iraq. When it was not that popular to protest, that wasn't a popular thing to do. Um, I went to India on my Fulbright and I exposed corruption in the Indian government. And uh, my life has been about fighting for freedom. And I think when you look at this climate change issue, I think it's an amazing um, opportunity to really talk about truth, freedom and health at a very fundamental level. And, and, and uh, you know, I got very much like the GMO thing. I was sort of drawn into this because uh, people started writing to me saying, Shiva, what do you think about climate change? When was this? This is probably about about four months ago. Oh, you know? really? That very early, you know. But the way I work, the way you know, 
you know, anyone who's passionate like I am about science, we like throw ourselves into it. And I have enough skills, you know, I still know my physics pretty well. I still know electrodynamics. I still know, uh, you know, a lot of math. You know, I grew up as a kid doing math all the time. In fact, I published a theorem when I was uh, 14 years old. So you're talking to a math yeah. guy. I used to go to math olympiads. It's easier for you to recognize the bullshit in a lot of these. Exactly. So I can see the bullshit, but I can also understand the math. And that, you know, so I, I thought, wow, you know, climate change, obviously there's stuff going on. And I read the New Yorker article, the caps are going to, polar caps are going to, you know, start melting. And we're on the verge of disaster. Um, and then uh, people may remember several years ago, you know, when I got into the climate change thing from a higher level, understanding the, the, the issue of the carbon credit tax, Al Gore, um, I did a video showing some of this didn't make sense because the carbon credit tax was actually incentivizing China to pollute. Yeah. So we can, we're going to get into climate change, okay? But my view, when you go to the whole net, we can argue about whether it's occurring or not, and we're going to have a good discussion about that. But the reality is, I think everyone will argue we want to lower pollution. Definitely, yeah. The number one source of death in the world right now, 7 million people a year die of air pollution. And by the way, CO2 is not a pollutant, okay? CO2, it's carbon monoxide, it's lead, it's sulfur dioxide, it's these, there's about seven or six or seven, uh, glyphosate, you know, atrazine, pesticides, uh, we throw a lot of plastics into the ocean. These things do harm, I mean, there's certainty that that harms the environment. Yeah. When we get into the area of climate change, we get into a very, very, in my conclusion, a, at minimum, a squishy area. Um, and let, let's talk about it. Yeah. Um, well, I was going to mention China, right? Because they actually do have a health problem because of their pollution. Wouldn't you agree? China has a major health problem. As I spoke about in one of my videos earlier, which went viral when, when, when Trump pulled out of the Paris Accords, I said, I looked at it and it made sense because when I actually went and read the Paris Accords. Yeah. And it basically says that China, uh, that was what, two years ago, up until 2030, China can actually pollute another 11 billion tons of carbon. They're at 11 billion at that time. They can go to 22 billion. So I'm looking at this. How can this be anything about uh, lowering pollution? Yeah. It wants China to pollute. In fact, India can pollute another 2 billion more tons. In fact, we're the ones. U U U.S. was actually going down. Wasn't it that you were going to get taxed um, if you pollute a certain amount? Uh, well, what's going to happen was no tax until 2030. So you have an amnesty period, but at 2030, so if you look at it in that video, what I talked about is, so let's just look at it very simply. Here's a business, which I don't know, let's say they burn carbon and they polluting the atmosphere. Any business, you could look at it right here in, in Massachusetts. And I, as a consumer, go buy the products that this business makes. I pay some money and they sell me their product. That's, let's say today. Fast forward to 2030, when the carbon tax kicks in. According to the Paris Accords, what will happen then? Well, there's a business that's polluting today, but in order for them to continue polluting, they're going to have to buy, um, they're going to pay a tax yeah. for their pollution. So what's going to happen? Well, that's going to get passed on to you. So your pro the price of your products is going to go up yeah. and they'll probably increase other charges, property tax, et cetera. Like in Massachusetts, we're talking about Charlie Baker's talking about increasing the property tax. Um, to manage climate change. But that money 
um, is going to go into a essentially the people own these carbon credits and the way it was teed up was it was set up so um, by the way there's a bunch of people who bought bought these carbon uh, tax credits at a lower rate okay. on, the, on the stock market so when 2030 comes you know it's going to explosively increase and you're going to have make trillionaires wow. so the idea of Al Gore the um, the Rio conference, um, we'll talk about this, um, was all set up to create this notion that we're going to have a global currency and we want to get everyone on it because CO2 is everywhere. That's what Al Gore was saying. Well, there's a, what's the guy's name? Maurice, his name will come to me. In fact, I have it, well, we can look him up. But yeah. uh, uh, this was a guy who did the oil for food, in, you know, when Saddam Hussein was there. Okay. Same guy, he's basically essentially a criminal. He's the one who set up the Rio conference in 1992. And the Rio conference essentially brought in two groups of people. One, we say the Congress of People, which were essentially celebrities, politicians, you know, nonprofits, who many of them know very little about science. And then the IPCC, the Interpanel Conference on, on Climate Change, right? Yeah. Interpanel uh, Conference on Climate Change. So this was meant, IPCC was meant to be the scientific group. Yeah. And when they got together in Rio, they actually passed some interesting decree, which actually said, you can't, if any evidence comes out against climate change, the, the theory, you can't even uh, publish that. This is what they said. Yes, in 1992. Really? Now, by 1999 or so. What was their reasoning for saying that? There is no reasoning, okay. except to suppress any, because they were already building this consensus that the earth is going to go to hell, CO2 increases. So it's very interesting to look at that. The interesting thing about that is by late 90s, 1999, even so initially they had a very small group of scientists and as they brought in other scientists, they said something's not adding up. Okay. These models aren't making sense. And so it was actually falling on its face. So the, the climate change alarmism was going down and that's when you see around, I think 2000, yeah. that's when Al Gore publishes Inconvenient Truth. Because you have to understand, Al Gore, like a politician, was trying to build his brand around something. He wrote a book called Earth in a Balance, yeah. where in that book he said, anti-Semitism is caused by climate change. Really? Yeah, Nazis, anti-Semitism. So Gore is looking for, by the way, he, he essentially nearly flunked out of Harvard, his father had to help him, flunked out of Vanderbilt. You're looking at a guy, he's a pretty stupid guy, yeah. who comes from a very wealthy family. And so by the late 90s, the climate change alarmism was crashing. He then gets pushes. So when things start not working, and you'll see the cycle, they put the pedal to the metal and start pushing out inconvenient truth. Yeah. He makes $100 million. He buys actually a media company, which he sells to Al Jazeera. I mean, it's a pretty wild set of things that Al Gore does. And that reminds me, during that time, they would push the documentary like everywhere. We would see everywhere. it in school, middle school. I would see yeah, it Yeah, it, it was massive. It exactly, yeah. it was massive PR. Yeah. Um, and by the way, if you look at one of his other books, on the front picture, he puts a picture of the earth, you know, a lot of clouds going away. On the inner cover of the book, he's got another picture of the earth, very brown with hurricanes everywhere. Well, the hurricane near Florida is going in the wrong direction. Okay, okay? it was photoshopped. It was photoshopped. Yeah, so what my, my point is, the level of science in this, when you really get into it, and again, you're talking to someone who's a green activist, who fought Monsanto, you know, I've supported local farmers, you know, I eat organic food. But when you start seeing this, you say, wait a minute, something's going on here. 
three, four months ago, people really wanted me to start looking at the math. Just, you know, because they say, hey, you're, into G you're against GMOs. What do you think about this climate change stuff? Um, so I reached out to various people. I also was on Google and I found out there was one other scientist at MIT, like me, who had also supported President Trump pulling out of the Paris Accords. And that was a guy called Dick Lindzen, okay. Professor Richard Lindzen. He still teaches at MIT? Professor Emeritus. He just retired recently. Okay. But one, I mean, he's won every accolade in the world. He's to be the head of the atmospheric group at MIT. Uh, Professor Emeritus. So I wrote a, uh, an email to Dick Lins and I said, Dick, you know, I'd like to speak to you. Um, I said, you and I may have some commonality because I came out against the Paris Accords. And uh, after he sent that letter to Trump, the president of MIT and a bunch of other professors attacked Lindzen. I mean, this guy's an eminent. I mean, he's a giant. Yeah. You got to understand, if people don't understand something here, if Nolan Ryan were, take Nolan Ryan here and take a little league baseball player here. Now, if Nolan Ryan tells you to throw a fastball like this, you listen to him. Do you listen to a little league guy? Probably not. Okay. But for some reason, the sciences, we don't give the respect. I mean, I mean, look, getting into MIT is a big thing. Getting four degrees at MIT is a big thing. Getting your PhD is a big thing. Now, the way you get there is you have to solve lots of problems. Yeah. I mean, you have to work your butt off. It is, these problems are difficult. Um, it's not, I mean, for some of you who had problems with algebra, take that to a much deeper level. So when you look at a guy like Lindzen, he's like a Nolan Ryan or, or a Hall of Famer, like a Michael Jordan, okay? And by the, uh, so that's the quality of person. To, to, so to me, it's a, a big deal to even be in the same room with a guy like him. So I wrote to Lindzen and, and, and Dick wrote me back and we, had, we started having a series of conversations. He educated me. I had to get back and understand physics. And what type of scientist is he? He's an astrophysicist. Okay. You know, he's, he's an applied physics. Okay. But he really understands atmospheric physics. Okay. And the conclusion we came to as I spoke to him was that there was something seriously wrong going on. Forget climate change. In science. Yeah. And the fact is that um, I asked him right after he wrote his letter to Trump, um, what en ended up happening was um, the president of MIT and a bunch of professors denounced him, attacked him. When was this? This is this is the time of the Paris Accords. And I said, Dick, why do they do that? He goes, Shiva, very simple, money. Okay, so let's. That's what this is all about. So let, let's talk about the physics here. Okay. Okay. Um, and you know, um, you know, in the one hour thing I did with Scott, you know, Scott's very good at trying to get things simple. You know, because he wants to try to get a message across, and that's a different thing. But today, we're actually going to hopefully educate you guys on what's going on. So I'm going to teach you the physics in a very simple way. It's basically an input. It's a systems problem. So you have the sun over here and you have the earth over here. And what we're trying to understand is climate, which is how the dynamics of various variables change on the planet earth. Okay. That's what we're going to focus on. Just to keep in mind, climate is different than weather. And one of the things that's been going on in this discussion is the alarmists, as I see them over here, continually confuse, conflate climate and weather. And they do it, in my conclusion, they do it maliciously. Okay. Okay. When we talk about climate, we're talking about, as in physics, we'd say a multi-scale, multi-spatial, multi-temporal, you know, it's a multi-scale problem. 
meaning it's, it's, you're looking at billions of years, there's a system, and various dynamics are going on. When you look at this dynamic, you have the sun here, which is, think about it as a ball of radiation. And it's putting out what's called radiation. Um, to go back to simple things that people remember, if you took your old chemistry or physics class, you know, you had the prism, Roy G. Biv, you know, red, orange, yellow. Yeah, yeah. Okay, that's called a visible light spectrum. Yeah. That's a small spectrum. But there's things, you know, that are called at much higher frequencies called ultraviolet, I mean, uh, infrared. There's all different frequencies of what's called electromagnetic radiation. That's a broad thing. We see a small spectrum. Um, within that, we call that uh, the visible light spectrum, okay? So the, the sun is about 6,000 degrees and it puts out radiation in the visible uh, range. When that radiation hits Earth, and to, to keep it simple, I give you simple numbers, uh, we're measuring here energy in watts, you know, like you, how much electricity you get, watts. So the amount of electricity or, or the amount of energy we get from the sun hitting us is, uh, is 340 watts per square meter. If you looked at the square meter of the Earth's surface, 340 watts go through, and that's called flux, how much energy per unit area. Okay. So 340 we get that hits the Earth's atmosphere. Um, 140 of that bounces off, to keep it simple. Yeah. 200 comes in. So you have, a, you have a budget of 200 that also has to get sent back out, you know, to balance everything. Well, how does that happen? Well, it's a very complex dynamics. Uh, it's actually hydrodynamics. Uh, it's radiative physics. And it's a very complex problem. And to give you the key players in that complexity is the atmosphere. So if you have the actual surface of the earth, you have the atmosphere, which is gases, which move very fast. And then you have the oceans, which move at a lo lower time scale. And the ocean has what's called turbulence. And the atmosphere has turbulence. Turbulent flow is different than what's called laminar flow. So if you open up your pipe of water and water comes out, that's called laminar flow. You can predict it. Okay, yeah. But if you boil some water, you see all the turbulence in there, it's very hard to predict. Yeah. Um, or a, a gurgling brook. Okay? So these are called, um, in fluid mechanics, if you take a fluids course, pretty tough course, um, you can take a much more advanced version of it or several courses where you learn turbulent flow. Very, very complex math. So you have two turbulent, turbulent fluids, the atmosphere and the oceans. Yeah. These two turbulent fields work together, very complex ways to release that other 200 watts per meter back out. From the sun. Yeah. yeah. So you got 340 that came in, 140 got reflected back. The other 200 needs to get out. Yeah. Okay. How does that happen? Well, the simple way I can explain it is go back to when you turn on your stove in the morning to make some tea, you, you fill it with water and it boils and what do you get? You get steam coming. That steam is a way of releasing some of the heat. Yep. Okay. So the way that the earth does is the earth, think about the surface of the earth in some ways as the, your stove. And in order for that other 200 to go out, guess what that temperature of that stove has to be? 
288 degrees Kelvin, which is the same as 15 degrees centigrade. Okay. The global mean temperature, they call it. And this temperature has been pretty constant for a long, long time. So the sun doesn't necessarily affect the change of that temperature that much? Or? Well, it's been able to, it's, it's the, the earth, because remember the earth has a mantle, so it takes that heat and it has to get rid of that through infrared. Yeah. So the way it does it is, it basically is boiling the water vapor and through convection, it goes out, okay? Now this process um, uh, is governed by these two fluids, but remember the atmosphere is primarily composed of various gases. Number one being nitrogen, number two being oxygen, argon. And about, I believe, 0.3 or 0.03%, a little sliver of it is what are called greenhouse gases. Methane, CO2, you know, ammonia, there's a couple of others. Why do we call these greenhouse gases? The reason we call them greenhouse gases is these molecules are able to um, emit and absorb infrared radiation, that heat that's coming off the earth. That's okay? supposed to go all the way up. Yeah, that's supposed to go all the way up. They can hold them, yeah. okay? Now, both scientists in this quote-unquote debate on left and right, including me and any, anyone, will agree, number one, that climate is changing. No one will agree, disagree to that. Climate changes, number one. Let's get this clear. Number two, um, greenhouse gases do increase the temperature. Everyone agrees with that. Number three, everyone agrees CO2 is a greenhouse gas. And number four, people agree that human activity does create greenhouse gases. Yep. So these are all yes, 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 four yeses. But that's not what the issue is. In science, the issue is how much. Yep. So let's, let's point, how much is this affecting that increase in, remember, 200 watts is what we need to get out. Now, over the years, both sides um, in the IPCC report of 2013, which is the most recent biggest report by 250 scientists, everyone agrees or the, the broad consensus is that if you double CO2, doubling of CO2, yeah. you will increase what's called radiative forcing, to put it simply, the increased amount that CO2 will contribute to the watts will be 3.7 watts per meter squared. So you have 200 watts. Because of the increased doubling of CO2, we're gonna have another 3.7 watts per meter. Okay. And if you work it through their models, boom, 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 you churn it through all these models. And by the way, there's 120, about 150 versions of these models. Everyone has their different models. The, as of today, the temperature of the earth as of today should have increased by 1.5 on the low end, upwards of um, 3.4 degrees. Okay. Okay. But, but Let's say the but what is the actual temperature increase today? If you go to NASA's website, yeah. it's 0 0.8. In fact, that 0 0.8 degree increase has stayed pretty consistent since the end of the last little ice age, which ended in the 1900s. Okay. 0.8 degrees. In those couple hundred years, I would say humanity's done pretty well than what we were in the 1900s. You know, we've advanced, we've grown, etc. Um, so. Again, let me keep it simple. These models predict as of today, the Earth's temperature should have gone up because of that additional CO2 that humans have put out, or greenhouse gases broadly, in a range of 1.5 degrees to 
But when you actually look at the temperatures, we're at 0.8. So when you bring this up to them, it's that simple. The, the, the their entire mo- is not is not it, adding is, up. To is not model. adding up. So, so at the last IPCC conference in 2013, um, I can read this to you. The scientists of that of that last IPCC conference, and I have it right here. Let me bring it up here. Um, so remember, remember, remember what I told you happened in 2000. I mean, 1999. The scientists did an about face. They said things aren't adding up. Well, the same thing, I think, uh, same thing occurred here in 2013. The big IPCC conferences take place once every six years. I mean, it's a lot, 250 scientists. And look what those key points were. This is from their report. There is no evidence and no consensus to support claims of imminent climate catastrophe or irreversible, excuse me, tipping points. There was indeed a 15-year hiatus in global warming from 1998 to 2013, and the climate models all failed to predict it and overshot warming so bad that they had to be disregarded, falsified. Do you want to read the others, Marcelo? Well, all right, both the IPCC and NOAA you may want to read it a little bit louder. Uh, agree there was and is no trend of increasing severity or frequency of hurricanes or typhoons or even thunderstorms in the 20th and 21st century. Wow, this is pretty incredible stuff. Okay. The previous IPCC report in 2007 was wrong. There is no evidence or likelihood that man's release of CO2 or any other behavior is doing anything to cause more droughts. So uh, the overall global trend of recent climate change is more rain and snow and less flooding. This is pr- pretty much agreeing with everything you're saying. There's no evidence to to say that that um, yeah. So so this was this is not me. This is a scientist, and it gets even more interesting. It says only 17 of the 198,000 glaciers in the world have records of 30 years or more, which means glaciers basically hang out for 30 years. And those that are receding were doing so since the end of the Little Ice Age before human CO2 as a factor. Ice sheets of both Greenland and Antarctica are growing and slowing the rate of sea level rise. Sea level rise is today 3 millimeters per year, far lower than the peak of 40 millimeters per year several thousand years ago. The sun and clouds may have more effect on the climate than previously acknowledged. That last statement is the most interesting one. What this says is, so Dick Lindzen, Richard Lindzen, Again, a serious guy in terms of physics um, who understands this. He wrote a paper, I think in early 2000, because things aren't adding up. Why aren't the models adding up? So Dick found out that he wrote a paper called the iris effect. You know how your iris opens and closes? And what he found out was his work showed that cirrus clouds which are clouds in the upper atmosphere, they can actually thicken and thin like the canopy, okay? Uh, or, or imagine opening up an umbrella. You can open it and close it okay. um, to let out heat or retain heat. So when they thin, more heat leaves. When they thicken, you can keep heat. Like the Earth has its own feedback system. Okay. Okay? And then he wrote another paper called The Faint Sun. Carl Sagan, you may know him, he was an astronomer at Cornell. Carl Sagan had come up with this um, 
Phenomen phenomenon. By the way, our thing ain't working here. So we're just going to do this. Oh, the okay. not yeah. working. Oh, okay. so, so Carl Sagan came up with this very, very interesting paradox where he showed that the sun... Yeah. By the way, suns are born, you know, like a sun is born, a new star is born. When they're initially born, they don't have that much heat and they get stronger and stronger and stronger and then they get weaker. But ours is a pretty relatively new sun. So about 2.5 billion years ago, the sun's radiation, so it's a new sun, was 30% less than what we have today. So the sun, the heat of the sun was 30% less. Is that, I've also heard the sun gets closer to Earth every year, like a certain distance. Very little, very, very, very little. But, but I'm talking about the actual heat, like the furnace starting up, you know, like you start a furnace, yeah. was very, very low, okay? okay? Um, so what was the heat of that sun? So if the heat of the sun is 30% less, what would the temperature of the Earth be 2.5 billion years ago? If it was 30% less? Yeah. Um, it would be 30% less, right? You would think so. Guess what the temperature of the Earth was 2.5 billion years ago? Um, you would say 30% yeah, less. Yeah, right. But you know what it was? It was the same as it is today. Okay. So how is that possible? So Linzen discovered that, the, and he had, had found data on this, that the clouds were much thicker, like a canopy. Okay? okay. So even though we were getting 30% less sun, maybe instead of 340 watts per meter, we were getting 200 watts per meter, right? But whatever came, the earth retained that heat. It didn't let it out. I see. And so initially, when this paradox was found, people like Sagan and others um, said, oh, it must be greenhouse gases were keeping it. But there was not enough greenhouse gases. They couldn't find enough. You would have needed a thousand times more greenhouse gases. So what was it then? It was a, it was at cirrus clouds. Oh, okay. Okay. So my point is, greenhouse gases are not the only thing that modulate the temperature retention of the Earth or release. This is something that feedback piece uh, when they calculate their temperature, right? They fudge the clouds. So if you actually add in clouds, Linsen and others proposed that the temperature would actually be much lower. Wow, it's that simple. They just don't take into account the clouds. They don't, the cirrus clouds. Yeah. Okay. So the way they treat the clouds, I mean, Linsen started showing me the math on this, and I have his papers that I went through and others' papers, is that they sort of average it. They treat it like a fudge factor. They don't really get into the details that the clouds themselves could be changing. Changing, yeah. Yeah. So, so think about it. If... I mean, very simply put, plants put out CO2 and plants put out oxygen. They take CO2. Yep. Now, just to give you a broad stroke on this, billions of years ago, the CO2 levels on the planet were like 2,500 parts per million. Now, everyone's concerned it's 350, 400 parts per million. They were like six times, seven times more. And everything flourished on the Earth. Yeah, so that wouldn't make sense for the people... Exactly. But 300 million years ago, the level of CO2 was about the same now. It was what's called CO2 famine. So CO2 is not a pollutant. It's, it's a nutrient for plants. Plants take CO2. They put out oxygen, right? Basic chemistry. So there is pretty much enough clarity that we, the Earth has been in CO2 famine. Which, and you know, below 140, 150 CO2, guess what happens? What happens 150, 
parts per million CO2 or less than that. Everything dies. Yeah. You need CO2. And we've been, we were hovering at around 200, 400,000 years ago. Now they're concerned it's doubled to 400. But the level of CO2 we have, if you go 300 million years ago, is that low. Like the curve goes very high, comes up, comes up, and went down for 300, 300 million years ago, then it went back up. We're at CO2 famine. Right now, it's just the natural cycle. Yeah, no, it's like, it's like one of the worst times to be for CO2. Yeah. We don't have enough. Forget us doing it. So one could argue the CO2 we're putting out is actually very beneficial. The latest NASA pictures show the greening of the earth, in fact. All over India and China, greening is taking place. In China? Yes. Really? Yeah, because they put out a lot of CO2. The issue is not the CO2 from a pollution thing. It's the other crap that's coming out. The other dumping that they're doing, you see? Okay, so what about all the smog? Is it because of the CO2? That's because of power plants and and um, uh, you know the way that they're burning stuff. A lot of people yeah. are burning wood. Yeah. Like in Indian villages, many years people just burn, cut down trees and burn it. That's putting up all other sorts of smog and I stuff okay. and dust. Yeah, okay, okay. Um, it's the dust which holds onto stuff. So if you look at the 7 million deaths that occur every year, number one cause air pollution, it's not CO2 is killing people, okay? It's lead and all these other stuff. So what we've done is, because no one studies science anymore, or the educated people are going there don't know science, we have made CO2 the demon. And when CO2 is not the demon, if anything, from a global climate perspective, we're at, a very, we're at CO2 famine. And the reason we've been able to survive as a human species is because we've started to grow CO2. Yeah. Okay? So I hope this is being clear. So the net of it is the entire uh, discussion around climate alarmism is based not on evidence, and we'll define what evidence is in science, but on a mathematical model which is throwing in all sorts of different things into a big math equation and stating that the level of CO, doubling of CO2 will increase the watts per meter by 3.7, which then when you put it into their equation, will result in an increasing of the temperature of the earth uh, to by 3.7, okay? And as of today, it should be 2.4, okay? plus or minus one degree, roughly. Okay, 1.5 to 3.4. But we're only at 0.8. We're not even at the lower end of that. Okay. Okay? But it's based on mathematical models. Now, what is evidence? In science, it's gonna sound a little bit weird, but evidence is unambiguous, unambiguous predictions. So for example, right now, if I were to say, if I were to, you were a scientist in India, and I said, hey, calculate if I left a projectile left at this degree angle and it went up into the atmosphere, where would it come? We could all use Newton's laws and we predict it perfectly. You could predict it. Your model would say the same location. That's called an unambiguous prediction. That's called evidence. Well, give you an example. They have nearly 40 different models that predict how much the Arctic ice sheets will melt from 0%, which means nothing's remaining, to 100%, everything's remaining. All, every model predicts every possibility. Okay. 
Really? So each model, one model says, oh, there'll be 0% left. Another one says 100%. Another one says so 90%. No similarities between it's not them. even evidence, okay. Marcelo. I mean, I'm just talking based. When I did the GMO thing, I had to show the mathematics. And then we were lucky we found a greenhouse which was growing the soy plant in the physical world. And it matched with our my model, which means my model was predicting reality. This model is not predicting reality. Now, what these guys say is, oh, well, you know, we forgot to include this variability and the chlorofarbons, we didn't include that. Well, the point is that they made it very squishy. So when you attack them, they can say, oh, well, we didn't include this and this. You see what I'm saying? They made it a squishy science. And they still say, oh, but the thesis is the same. For yes, well, well so, so now you're getting to an important point. So what they moved into is saying, yeah, our models, but this could happen, could it not? Do you want your kids to suffer? Hey, so what they've done is they've created doubt, fear, uncertainty, and doubt. By the way, that was the way IBM used to sell computers in the old days. They said, hey, look, we're IBM. When you buy from us, we're gonna be always there for you. We'll be always there to fix it. You don't wanna buy from that small guy, do you? So fear, so they've, now, so because they've created fear, uncertainty, and doubt, now they can sell you something else. And, and you can figure out what that is. For example, if you have a car, what does everyone with a car get? Um, electric cars. No, but what, what do people, if you have a car, what do you get? Oh, gas. No, but what else do you get? Insurance. Exactly. If you have a home, what do you get? Insurance. If you have a, um, if you have a business, what do you get? Business insurance. insurance. Yeah. So if you live in, a, a, maybe you're in a flood area, you get flood insurance. Because it could happen, right? Yeah. So if you create enough uncertainty and then the media layers it in, you've created now a situation where you become a heretic. If you say, wait a minute, wait a minute, these models, hey, wait a minute, Shiva, this could happen. Are you, right? So therefore, where we're headed towards is a global insurance tax for everyone, which you can call carbon tax. But basically, we're all going to almost, I don't want to say Obamacare, but we're all going to be brought in to say, we got it, we got it all pitch in. Yeah. Okay. Right. So this is all business incentives. This is all based off of profit. These people want to make money. Well, what, what, it, what, yeah, what it is, is you're going to create an industry of fear. Yeah. And it's going to say, you know, we're going to have to, like Charlie Baker, I said, is talking about increasing property taxes. Oh my God, you know, this could flood, that could flood, this could flood. When this kind of stuff's been going on forever. You know, weather is not climate. Weather changes have always gone on. I mean, I remember going to India as a kid. I'd be walking up to my, you know, neck in water. The monsoons. I mean, I never, this was just normal. Oh, you get high monsoons, you get low monsoons, yeah. you know? But we have created enough uncertainty. Their models are not working. But they're saying, look, it's in that 1.5 to 3.4. It could occur. You know, that's why this IPCC report of 2013 is interesting. Now, when this report came out, these guys said, oh, shit. Are, right? Because these are scientists. Yeah. So what they have is they have, they have initially a small group of guys who are part of the climate alarmism. But to make it legitimate, they have to bring in other scientists. Well, when the broad group of scientists come in, this is what comes out. So then what they do is, so 2018, five years, last, last year, they said, oh, no, 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 this shit is going to hit the fan. But that wasn't done by 250 people. That was done by like 20 or 30 guys. Okay. okay. So they go into the back room 
and they gear up. And, and if you notice, that's when the Green New Deal comes out. So whenever things start going the other way, they, they, it's interesting to note that Green New Deal happens. We got to pass this. We got to stop all discussion of uh, uh, Schumer's trying to pass a bill, um, which says that any federal agency which wants to fund panels to have open discourse, it should not be allowed. So what is going on here? The fundamentals of what's going on here is, I can tell you, looking at this closely, you're talking to an engineer, talking to a guy who went to MIT, who does the math, the numbers don't add up. Science, go back to the origins of the scientific method. Science is, goes like this, and this is science. You see a phenomenon in the world. You see, oh, I, I, I take a, an apple and I drop it and it falls to the ground. Newton says, wow, that's interesting. How does that occur? Or I, um, you know, I shoot a projectile and it goes in a nice arc and it lands. Wow, how does that occur, right? So we as human beings see a phenomenon that's called an observation. The next thing you do in the scientific method, you, you say, let me come up with a hypothesis, which is a guess. That's all it is, why that's occurring. And based on that, you come up with some equation. You know, I think it's occurring like this. If I drop the app, hold the apple at this height, it'll get to the ground by this time, right? You come up with an equation. Then you take your equation and you actually go test it in the experiments. If your, if your equation, which is your guess, matches the reality, that means the science behind your equations is correct. If it doesn't match, as Richard Feynman, the great physicist said, it doesn't matter how good looking you are, you know, how not good looking you are, how well you speak, all of that doesn't matter. Your shit is not working. It doesn't work. But we as humans have um, some type of, of incentive to always kind of back up our theories in a way, right? Well, no, no, no. Lot, That's what's great. You know, no, no, no. Right? Great science. E equals MC squared works. Yeah. F equals MA works. The reason we have an iPhone the reason, you know, we have bridges is because of Isaac Newton's equations. The reason we were able to, you know, air flight. The reason uh, we understand radio waves yeah. is because of Maxwell's law and Faraday's. There are people who are serious scientists. Yeah. You actually look at the, this is, this is, this is like real science. This is truth. You look at the world, you see something, you guess, you use the, um, the, uh, the language of mathematics. And then based on that, then you go test your equation. So you take a spreadsheet, you say, my model predicts this. Based on these variables, I put these in, my model says this, and then you compare it to the actual reality. If those match, you have a law or you've, your science is correct. Yeah. This is called the scientific method. Now, the scientific method, when you apply it to their mathematical model, which predicts that the Earth's temperature is supposed to go up because of a doubling of CO2 is not matching up. Game, set, match. It's not. What, it, what it could be. tell someone this that's, that's part of the climate change? Um, well, yeah. um, you know, I did not have a chance to tell anyone this until, like, because I just learned all of this. I mean, when I looked at it, I realized the whole thing's a hoax. Yeah. It really is. And I can prove it. To, I, can, I, I can challenge anyone now. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, as uh, last week, there was an event at Memorial Hall Library in Andover, and I'm going to use the word academic 
was speaking, not a scientist. Oh, he wasn't a scientist. Well, I'll tell you what I mean. An academic is not a scientist. They may have a PhD, but they're basically prostitutes. Um, And this is not my word. This is the words of other real scientists who realize there's total whoredom prostitution taking place in the field of academia. This is an academic who runs some center there, which is about bringing in grant money. And I'll I'll get get to this, okay? So he's up there alarming the shit out of people. So I'm sitting there. By the way, it was an interesting thing. There's about 150 people there, all sort of everyday senior citizens. They all, a lot of people look there like Elizabeth Warren, sorry to say. Yeah. Um, and they're there. It, it looks like they already made their mind up, convinced that climate change is... Well, climate change is occurring, but that there's cause for alarm. Like the earth is going to end if we don't do stuff. And I had seen this guy. His name is Janatos, Anthony Janatos. He runs a center at BU on YouTube. And his talk was almost like... I hate to say like the Flim Flam Man. There's a movie with, I think, Steve Martin, like a preacher. Okay, yeah. You know, he's got his, you know, bright red thing, his horn rimmed glasses, you know, his gray hair. He's up there. I think literally about five minutes into it, he puts up a picture of SpongeBob Bob saying the ocean, and if you read it, it says the oceans are getting more acidic. Now, and before that, he had made a comment saying, that, uh, you know, this is basic chemistry. Well, I was a number one student in AP chemistry. I believe in the state of New Jersey, I won the chemistry award okay. for, at the state level. So I know chemistry. Yeah. And I had one of the best teachers in chemistry. In fact, I believe Mr. Walker won one of the presidential awards. And he was not a, um, a guy at a time in the 70s. He, he taught chemistry. He also had a job as a contractor and was a carpenter. And he's still alive. Okay, great guy. He taught me chemistry. If you, if if the answer is ninety nine point nine one two, and you put ninety nine point nine one, you got ten points off, because that's called precision of digits. You have to be correct. Serious hard ass. Yeah. So I learned chemistry. Now one of the things in chemistry is you learn a thing called pH. Okay, pH is a measure of the alkalinity, or the acidity, or the neutrality of some, any like fluid, for example. Um, and you use pH stick. So 0 to 6.99999 is known as what? Acidic. 7 is known as neutral. You know, anything above 7 to 14 is known as alkaline or basic. Now, if you're given an exam and he says, and, and, and something is 6 point, let's say something is 7.5, that is basic. It's not acidic. You would get an F. In any chemistry teacher would give you an F if you said, oh, that's acidic. Yeah. If you told someone that the oceans are acidic, you would get an F. Let me tell you why. If you take distilled water, which is pH neutral 7, and you drop, let's say, a certain amount of hydrochloric acid, you can go take the pH from 7 to 6. Okay? Yeah. Hydrochloric acid is acidic. If you take that same amount of acid and you drop it into the same amount of seawater do you know what happens what's the ph of that seawater change to it it'll, it'll go by it'll go down by 0.0003 because seawater knows how to buffer it can absorb acid okay. the oceans have been roughly 7.5 to 8.3 ph which is basic alkaline for nearly ever 
So it doesn't have that much of an effect. The oceans are never going to get acidic. Yeah. They're always going to be basic. Fresh water is acidic. Okay, it's in that pH range of zero to... What I'm saying is, so he's got this picture up there saying the oceans are going to get more acidic. To the average person, Marcelo, if you didn't study science, acidic, oh my God, acid in my body. Yeah. Acid, like battery acid. It's a very alarming term. So I'm sitting there and I tell this guy, I said, you're lying. No, no, actually, I was very kind to him. I said, what's the pH of the ocean? And, and he was stunned. I asked him that question. <laughs> uh, he go, and, I, and I go, um, you know, the oceans can never get acidic. They're always basic. So he's saying, oh, I was saying that they were going to get um, uh, less basic. He starts switching it. Okay. And I said, that's not what you said. I said, you use the term acidic. The oceans will never, ever get acidic. But to average people there, they think acidic, it's a bad term. Yeah. He was being very, very maliciously clever to these people. It's like, imagine you're going north on a highway and it would be like you saying, Shiva, you're going less south. <laughs> okay? Yeah. Now, the only reason you would say that would if the word north had a bad connotation, like acidic. Okay? So, I'll give you an example. No different than, than now this guy is a, by the way, he's not an engineer, he probably hasn't studied physics deeply. He was a, I think, Princeton biology guy and PhD in biology, life sciences, right? What he did in that little instance, Marcelo, is the same thing that Al Gore did having that hurricane go in the wrong direction. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. They're getting away with just nonsense. And no one's calling them out. Why? The reason is this is a multi-billion dollar industry right now. Um, and you just need to rewind this a little bit back to Eisenhower. Eisenhower was the one who coined the military industrial academic complex, right? Now, when Eisenhower coined that, he also was saying that, saying how politics and academia are getting so tight that politicians and the state could influence um, science. And he was now around the 40s to the 60s before um, there was a period where military had a huge budget and they used to fund science and they didn't care if it was for weaponry or not. So, I mean, they had a huge budget and science was a little piece of it. So they didn't even care how much was going in and they never even bothered the scientists. So really great science came out. But then during Vietnam War, the Mansfield Amendment gets passed. And it said that the Defense Department was not going to fund any more pure science unless it was for weaponry. Really? That yes, that Mansfield Amendment. Okay. Now, this was significant because what it did was that there was another organization in the government called the National Science Foundation. So you were the head of the National Science Foundation. You don't have a lot of power before because, you know, if you're a scientist at MIT, you're getting funded by the military, not for doing military work, but for anything, you know? Yeah. But now, because that funding got cut to do basic research, you become the head honcho. So all the money flows through you to do basic research. So a small organization where before real science research was a small piece of a big organization, so they didn't care. Now, most of scientific research budget became part of the National Science Foundation. And, and, and the NSF could be influenced by political agendas now. So that's what started happening. 
So starting around the 60s or 70s, you start now having academics rely on grants. Okay. Eisenhower said that mediocre academics needed grants. There, the, before, it was like Olymp Olympic athletes. If you were a great academic, you were given money and just do whatever the hell you want. But now what happened was because that budget, the Mansfield Amendment took place, there was less funding or essentially people needed grants, right? Competition. So you could have, and that's when you start seeing the decay of academia starting then. Meaning you had scientists and you had academics. Scientists tell the truth. Scientists question. Scientists repeat their experiments multiple times if they don't work. They really want to get to the heart of stuff. Yeah. Like E equals MC squared and F equals MA and E equals H nu and Maxwell's laws. Serious scientists. Now you have another group of people who could say, ah, oh, genetically engineered foods, buy fresh, buy GMOs, front page of MIT. How the hell did that take place? Because what's happened is you have mediocre people who can rationalize stuff. They are chasing the skirt called grants because they have seven years to get tenure and they need grant money. So now you have the former science, the real scientists are not scientists, but you have academics who are salespeople. They're getting grants and they got to get grants and they got to get grants. Now, take a place like MIT. When I came there in 1981, you had about 8,000 students about the same number of professors as you do today. The same number of students. But you know what has explosively grown? Administrators. Yep. Fa the fat. These people are building like vertical businesses where they bring in grant money, they build layers and layers of people, and the amount of salaries for those people, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars in salary. Okay. So if you give $1 of grant money to MIT to do some research, Guess how much actually goes to the researcher? Let's say you're the researcher doing some research on cancer at MIT. And I'm a foundation. I don't know, like the, this, this, the Home Depot Foundation. And I want to give $100 million to MIT. Guess how much actually ends up to the researcher? Um, what percentage do you think? 20%? 30%. The 70 million goes to administration. It's a money-making venture for universities. So it's almost like... Think about you have the peasants down on the bottom floor working away. Above them in the skyscrapers on the penthouse suite, you have administrators. So they're getting money because they got the grant money. For they got the grants, they have incentives, they have layers of people. It's power also, power and control. Okay. So what was happening was that Clinton and Gore, this is all about control. Maurice Strong, that's a guy. Maurice Strong was a guy who was behind the, the biggest crime probably with the UN, taking oil out of Iraq, saying we're going to sell it to feed the, the, the poor people in Iraq. Billions got stolen. Billions. Of oil? Yeah. Okay. Maurice Strong was behind that. Same guy as the one who ran the Rio Summit. He's new money-making venture. Let's make CO2, you know, the Rio Conference, IPCC. That's where it comes from. And then you have the Gores. You also have a varying set of confluence of events that took place. In the 80s, you had Margaret Thatcher. Uh, you know, she was with the right-wing party. She didn't like coal miners. She wanted to shut down coal. You have Olaf Palme in Sweden. He wanted to support nuclear power. So you had a huge set of people who were against, um, you know, fossil fuels. And you had Maurice Strong who sees, oh, CO2 is everywhere. I could probably create a, you know, 
a global economy, and you have Al Gore wanting to make a name for himself, okay? So it was this confluence of things that created this thing called climate change. And I put it though, that in double quotes. So what you see happening is that the academics exist to get grants. So climate change opened up $2 billion in grant money. Guess what? There weren't enough people qualified to do climate research. Why did it open up so much money though? Well, people said we have to fund climate research. Was it just the alarmist message of it? The alarmist message opened up a lot of money because remember, you can create a narrative and guess where that money goes? It goes to foundations. You start controlling the flow. Look, imagine Marcelo, someone said, hey, Marcelo, I'm going to give you two billion bucks to give to other people. You suddenly become a very powerful man. Let's say you're with the NSF. So all these bureaucrats who have access to streams of that money to distribute it become very powerful because yeah. they can control people. So $2 billion. Up. So you could put bed bugs in climate change. By the way, you know, Syrian war in climate change. Um, whatever it is, add climate change to it and you're going to get funded. Yeah. That's, so that's, these are called impact studies. So that guy, Janaitos, he was talking about impact studies. Impact studies is, oh my God, if this happens, what would happen here? If this happens, it's all what if. So there's a lot of money for impact studies. Now, I live in this neighborhood here. There's two MIT professors and one Harvard professor. I guarantee none of them are going to, they're not even in the field of climate. Okay? They're in some other field. But I can tell you that if they're at MIT and they say anything that could be contrary to climate, they're probably going to lose their grant some other way. Because the administrators want that grant money. Exactly. Because what happened was, that's why when Lindzen wrote to Trump, yeah. the reason they came down on MIT gets around 20 to 40 million bucks. Okay? They're not going to get that. So what's fundamentally occurred here, the deeper issue here is climate change is really not about climate change. What it's really about is three things. One, it's about creating a narrative which cannot be backed up by what we call the scientific method. So we were all going to get taxed something. Number one. Number two, the other thing that it's creating is something even worse because there is real pollution taking place. Yeah. China's allowed to pollute more. Their Monsanto pollutes our soil of this country, right? You have um, health issues taking place from pharmaceuticals going to the water supply. You have real certainty. All of that is going to be some suit now, right? All of that's going to be... It has been, yeah. Yeah, you don't hear much about yeah. it, okay? Then the third issue that's happening, this is, I think, the most serious issue. That's why I call the truth, freedom, and health is you have this bigger issue of um, stopping scientific discourse. Science moves forward by asking questions by inquiring, by knowing we don't know stuff. So for example, with this climate issue, when you actually look at the data, you know what's fascinating? That the, the temperature on the equator stayed absolutely pretty much constant for eons. Yep. But what has varied is the difference of the temperature between the poles to the tropics. That temperature, it's called the delta T, can create what are called waves, okay? And that delta T temperature has varied over billions of years into very particular regions, which have accounted for the major change in the global mean temperature of 15 degrees. Okay. So they're flipped out the whole thing. They're saying, oh, the global mean temperature is changing. 
because of CO2, that's going to make the polar caps melt. It's asked backwards. The reality is that, and this is, this is some really cool stuff that we need to actually do research on. The orbit of the Earth around the Sun creates perturbations which actually can start ice sheets forming and going away. It's like a wave. That creates temperature changes between the poles towards the tropics. And that delta T is what changes the global mean. Okay. okay? They've got it all asked backwards. They're saying CO2 levels, increasing greenhouse gases, will change the global mean temperature. And that global mean temperature is going to go hit the ice caps. It's completely backwards. They don't understand hydrodynamics. They don't want to even admit that we don't even understand. There's many beautiful problems we don't understand. Yeah. So why aren't the other scientists speaking up about this? Why do you think? I just told well, you. Because they're going to It's get, money. Yeah. It's very simple. It's money. I see. So, but the deeper issue here, now we can go to the deeper layers here, is what is going... So, C.P. Snow, I think I mentioned to you, C.P. Snow, um, I, when I was in ninth grade, I read a great book by written by C.P. Snow. You should, every person should read it. I had a great AP uh, English teacher. Um, and C.P. Snow bridged both worlds. He bridged the world of the humanities he was a very, very prolific novelist, like a serious novelist. But he was also a physical chemist. Physical chemistry is a beautiful field of, of chemistry. And C.P. Snow talks about how, he, how, how he'd go into a group of very, this is 60 years ago, about among very elite uh, people who were supposedly super educated, college, etc. And he'd ask them, hey, do you know the third law, second law of thermodynamics? And they'd be like complete silence. In fact, disdain, why the hell are you asking that? And he'd say, wait a minute, what I just asked you in the world of humanities is saying, do you know Shakespeare? I mean, the second law of thermodynamics, everyone should know. Yeah. And then he, then he goes even more simpler. He would ask him, do you know the difference between force and acceleration? And they would get even more pissed off that how dare you come here and ask us stuff like that. That's no different in the world of humanities saying, do you know how to read? So the reason what's happened is if you actually go among let's say a set of people graduate colleges yeah. who are getting degrees and you ask them, do you know the second law of thermodynamics? Do you know the difference between force and mass and acceleration? These are people with a bachelor's degree. I guarantee you maybe uh, one out of 10 of those people would be able to answer that. Yeah. Well, I, the way we learn it, we remember it for a month for right. our exam and then we forget. That's just so now you've hit the important point. What education has become is pleasing the professor. Yeah. It's about getting grades. It's about learning how to wheedle your way through the fine. Um, a friend of mine, Mitch, was saying when his daughter went to, I think, UCLA, he goes, she didn't really learn a lot, but she learned how to work the system to get her, to get her student loan, who to speak to here, who to speak to there. That's what she learned. So what we're doing is we're creating people who are not actually learning math or physics. They are learning how to manipulate systems how do people please? And that's what their teachers are also doing. Yep. They're learning how to people please to get grants. They're never going to rock the boat. And academia or the university system at a time was a place that you went to to rock the boat. It was a place where you could be shielded and protected from the outside wolves and you could go do real science. So you don't have that anymore. 
That's what I am concerned about. I'm concerned that we're heading into the dark ages because when Schumer can, along with Markey, along with Cory Booker, put a bill up which says that any federal agency which wants to have a open forum or discussion on climate change will not be funded because there's all, this is what they say, there's already quote-unquote scientific mm. consensus. Yeah. They're putting, that's what happened to me at Andover. That's what happened. There, I'm asking a simple question. And by the way, that's how science is done. People used to have vigorous debates. I mean, that was nothing. People would say, you're wrong, you're right, you know? A guy standing up there with his little freaking look telling me that the oceans are getting more acidic and that I bring that up, if he ever did that in any PhD committee at MIT or anywhere, he'd be thrown out. He wouldn't even get his PhD. And then later on, saying we have definitive data to show that the Earth's temperatures are going up. But they're, they're still giving talks like that at MIT, I'm sure. Exactly. So that's what is, we're heading into the dark ages. And this is, I mean, this is beyond the deep state. This is beyond fake news. What we have headed into now is like the Council of Trent, where they passed an edict that you will not talk about Galileo's findings. This is dangerous because scientific inquiry, scientific questioning is how we have everything around us. As I mentioned, that iPhone, this microphone, you know, clothes on you, your watch, um, the car, all of this came from people just shedding a lot of sweat and blood, figuring out the math, the physics, and being able to reproduce it. I mean, we can produce a computer that's always works. I mean, the chip on that computer, I mean, the level of science in a computer, the physics is extraordinary. And what, we, what we're doing now is we're creating people who are told, if, I, I bet you, you bet, tell a bunch of students that Earth is flat, they'd believe it. <laughs> Bec as long as they could get an A. Yeah, yeah. So what I'm saying is that's what, so you have fewer scientists, you have a majority of academics who are academic salespeople getting grants, they're producing students who do not know any science. And then you have the general public. The good news out of this is this, the ordinary person. The ordinary person doesn't, a plumber, an electrician, they don't have time to rationalize stuff. Or a business person, or a person who has to produce a piece of software. Yeah. It has to work or not, you're going to lose a customer. These people can rationalize stuff. They can make reality out of bullshit. But if I'm working on a piece of software and I deliver it to a customer and it doesn't work, I'm going to lose my company. I can't rationalize. Stuff has to work. So in my view, when it comes down to this, going back to my position as I'm a green activist, hey, look, on one hand, I'm thrilled that there's all this amazing, renewed passion for getting the world clean. You know, I love the passion of AOC. I love disruptors. I'm an anti-establishment guy, right? I love the disruption of Trump. He went after the elites. I love the uh, passion of AOC. But that passion has to be matched with science. Yeah. And, you know, I am, I am so concerned about this, Marcelo, that I'm willing to sell everything I ever own and tell these people that I, we need to reopen up this scientific discussion. And I'm going to create a, a site uh, this week, uh, probably something called Show Me the Heat. Dot com, 
where on that I'm gonna say, look, this is what your model predicts. This is a scientific method. And this is what NASA's reporting. It's not, let's track it. For, and in fact, I'll give them until 2020 when her election is coming due to let that temperature, even at the bottom of that scale, the 1.5, it's a 0.8. If it does, I'll give you $100 million. Then I say, let's also track CO2. Is CO2 that bad? So let's track the level of CO2 from when we were tracking it and look at the greening of the earth because we have data. And then if we really want to solve this, let's also look at pollution, real pollution that we know is certain. Let's track glyphosate levels. Let's track atrazine levels. Let's track the lead levels in the atmosphere. Let's track sulfur dioxide. Let's track the things that we know are killing us. My mom died of pulmonary fibrosis because she worked in a plant where there was asbestos. Let's actually track those things because we know the number one cause of death is air pollution and show how that's increasing. Yeah. And why aren't we doing something about that? And the, what needs to be brought out is that the climate change issue is the, you know, it's like uh, in magic, they say, watch, it's, it's you know, they, they, they try to do a sleight of hand. While this is going on, you're getting this other stuff yeah. through. So we're talking about climate change. It's like 9-11, you create such a horrible, dangerous thing, then we go and invade Iraq, right? So we are creating this thing called climate change and the alarmism around it. Academics are gonna, people are gonna make a ton of money. You're continuing to pollute the world. People are continuing to die. Plastics get thrown in the ocean. We haven't really solved that. Yeah, that's true. And we are then alarming people up particularly these young Gen Z and millennials, they're gonna do climate change protests. And what's like, I think that gun violence protest you want to, but what's fundamentally happening in the world right now is people are taking, um, uh, basically there's a fundamental attack on free speech yeah. when it comes to scientific inquiry. And when you do, when we do that, we're heading into the dark ages. And I, I don't mean this in any ways, you know, you know, fake news, deep state, you know, we talk about this stuff, they're real. Yeah. But this stuff is the reality behind that reality. And it seems like with the industry growing even more, the environmental industry, more young people are gonna have these jobs, like whether it's working with solar power, um, and they're gonna be more invested in uh, pushing this theory, right? Right, and uh, exactly, look, I'll give you an example how screwed up this is. Um, AOC's chief advisor, senior advisor, now was the head of the biggest pot lobbying group. One gram of cannabis, we'll do another cannabis one, the science of it. Do you know how much one gram of cannabis costs how many kilowatt hours to produce? Because all of it's, I mean, this is worse than factory farms. They do them in greenhouses with pumping in CO2 and lighting and this. It requires 2.08 kilowatt hours, one gram. Now, one of the most um, expensive metals from ener energy to produce is aluminum. You know how much energy aluminum takes to produce? 0.02 kilowatt hours. So marijuana, cannabis takes 10 times more. The state of Seattle, just one state, is producing so much marijuana that it's going to have 
to create another Grand Coulee Dam. And you can't do this with solar, and you can't do it with um, uh, windmills. So you have to wonder, what is this Green New Deal really about? Why would this woman, AOC... And then Markey, our senator, right? Yeah. So think about it. So when you go to the math, when you do it, and no one wants to do the math, it's get people in on emotion. And the phenomenon that we're seeing here is this is the mechanics. So we had the military-industrial complex we've talked about. But in the 70s and 80s, we created something even beyond that. We created a sophistication of that. It's almost version 2.0. We layered in amazing advertising. And then with that, they created a two-pronged strategy. Always, this is a cocktail for manipulation of the masses. Always bring in a social justice issue. Some social justice issue. Mix it with bogus academic science. And now you have a powerful weapon. So I'll give you an example. I think we may have talked about this. Uh, Prozac sales are going down. Okay. Right? So your Prozac sales going down. Um, many years ago, my company, Echo Mail, we were selling to a customers in the PR industry. And, uh, and uh, he, this was a senior executive who handled crisis management. You know, when the shit hits a fan for companies. So I said, give me an example of a crisis where you were brought in. He said, oh, well, you know, there was a time when Prozac sales were going down for Eli Lilly. And I was called in to help them. I said, what'd you do? And he was just telling this matter of fact and very proud of what he did. He said, well, I went into Eli Lilly and said, you got to change your whole brand. You shouldn't be even discussing this as, you know, your drug company. Change it to you help the world. Okay. I forget what the, I'm paraphrasing it. Next thing they did was they created a couple of nonprofits. One of the ones I remember still to this day was he said they created a nonprofit for battered women, which Eli Lilly funded. And that nonprofit would take out full page ads saying, is your husband battering you? Do you know if someone's battering their wife? Make sure they're taking their Prozac. And Eli Lilly sales came up. So battered women, who wants battered women to get beat up, right? Take the example with GMOs. Poor Africans, poor Indians, yeah. these young kids. We gotta protect them. We need genetically engineered foods, right? Um, there was a time for 50 years when academics said that tobacco smoking could heal you of asthma. Yeah. Okay, that it was good for you. Now look at cannabis, and we'll do a different show on this, right? Oh my God, we got to stop the black incarceration rates. You know, poor blacks. And oh my God, we're denying people medicine, right? So those two mix it with science, fake science, saying this is cures everything. It's an exit drug. And when the reality is huge correlation between cannabis violence and we're finishing up the scientific work showing definitively how the mechanistic pathways of THC, and by the way, no one talks about it, what we're dealing today is not the cannabis that grew in the Hindu Kush mountains 5,000 years ago, okay? We're talking about 80 to one THC. It is just like the cigarette was a delivery mechanism for nicotine. Prior to the 1900s, I don't know if you know this, um, a handful, you could count the number of people that died from tobacco. It's when they started mixing the Indian and American varieties, mm, started creating the cigarette. 
which was a nicotine delivery engine, and the goal was to get young people on it, cradle to grave marketing. So what we're looking at here is the same thing. Oh my, and this is probably the biggest scam of the century. Oh my God, your children. What do you want to leave your children? Don't you want to leave the world better than it was, okay? For your children, the poor children. Then you layer in, now, it's the scientists are being mum. Yeah. Because they're afraid of losing grants, right? And you have mediocre scientists, you have mediocre students. And so the good, the positive thing about it is we still have ordinary people, the plumber the, who have to rationally work. They're not buying into this. Yeah, they are. Ordinary people can, do not rationalize. They know something doesn't smell right and they're not buying into it. Yeah, definitely. So in many ways, the university going person is actually being manipulated. They are really the sheep in this whole thing. Yeah. You know, they're being manipulated because they've taught them how to rationalize stuff. I mean, I bet you I could go and teach a course at a university and convince them about something just so I, they know if they believe me, I'll give them an A. Yeah, they're very easy to convince a lot of these right. students. And they'll just agree with the teacher just to get an A. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. So that's what has really happened. So I think, you know, you know, we can keep going. I think the reason I call this truth, freedom, and health is, as I said earlier, um, I mean, it, it was a very interesting thing as I came to these conclusions over the last few days. I mean, everything's really come together. Is that I came to the, I was trying to look at my own life. Hey, how come... I always was protesting and fighting. Why did I go to the Boston Common? 40 of us versus 40,000 people, right? Why is it that I've loved science? Completely different track. I mean, some people just protest all day, right? Yeah. Some people do science all day. And then I've always been into the green, the green stuff and health and systems health and science. It's three different Shivas have been there. But the reason I've always been such a strong fighter is because deep in my heart I know that if you do not have freedom to debate and to question and challenge you can't have science there is no science is dead yeah. but you need that prerequisite to question to challenge and from that you get science real science not academic salesmanship and from that science you create products for the world that can heal our bodies that can heal our communities that can heal our organizations that can um, heal businesses. I mean, all different things. Yeah. And I, when I look at my own life, I've been a fighter. I've published in the major journals of the world that most people, if they publish in them, they, people would be like, oh my God, you publish in Nature or Cell. So it's not like simple stuff with, the, with leading, world-leading researchers in the world. And then I've tangibly taken that knowledge, that science that I've painstakingly learned and created something like Clean Food Certified, created something like Cytosol, created something like, you know, done the research on Monsanto. Yeah. This has all come from those, but it began with freedom. Yep. And then you go to science, and then you get, and what we've done is we put the cart before the horse. We're saying climate change is taking place. It's done. It's a done deal. There's no science to back it up. And then you shut up the academics. I mean, think about it. There is no real health. There is no real science and there is no real freedom. Yeah. That's what the climate change thing is all about. It's not even about 
the scam of the temperature anomaly not matching. It's something much, much deeper. And I just had that aha, you know, uh, yesterday. Yeah. When I was sort of reflecting on my own life, reflecting on what happened at that Andover Memorial Hall library. I mean, it's just ridiculous. A woman screaming at me like a mad person. And these are adults. They are convinced that the world is coming to an end. In fact, there's a New York Times book that came out and the first page of the book starts out was like, it's worse than you think. <laughs> says, gonna, a lot of people are going to make a ton of money yeah, on this. Seems like it. Yep. Okay, well, anyway, that ends this episode on climate change, truth, freedom, and health. And keep an eye out on our website. We're going to be launching a new website called Show Me the Heat and Climate Countdown 2020. And it's going to be my open-armed, um, not challenge, but invitation to look at the science, to see if things are matching, to see if CO2 is in fact a pollutant, and ask why aren't we addressing the real pollutants that are killing people right now and tracking that. Yep, have an have a open discourse. Have an open discourse. We're going to open it up on our website. And it's going to be called Show Me the Heat, and I'll show you the green. I'll give you $100 million in 2020 if that temperature hits the <laughs> lowest level. So I'm going to, And I'm doing that not as some troll or some joke, but I think we're in a very, very dangerous time um, from a freedom standpoint, from a science standpoint, and the products of that. Thank you.